So this afternoon we're going to look at Luke chapter 2, particularly verses 21 to 24. Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 24. Before we study that, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we now study your word and seek to understand the things that you would have to say to us, we pray, Father, that you would give us ears that hear, eyes that see, and hearts that are understanding and obedient. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 2, I'll just read verses 21 to 24. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Amen. And may God bless his word to us. So um, I'm sure you're pretty well aware, but just to sum up, our text comes after we've been told of the birth of Jesus. We've been told of the angels who testified to the shepherds that the Saviour was born. And now we have the baby Jesus. At the end of eight days, we're told, he was taken to be circumcised and he was given the name that the angel had commanded. He was called Jesus. It means, I'm sorry, it transliterates, Jesus is our um, translation of Joshua. His name was Joshua or Yeshua. And it's the name given in obedience to the word of the angel. It's interesting that at the end of eight days he was circumcised and we need to sort of dig a bit into the fact that he was circumcised and why he was circumcised. To be circumcised in the Old Testament was, one, the sign of the covenant that God first established with Abram concerning himself and all his offspring, and two, it was a sign that indicated the need of an internal circumcision. The the circumcision practised on a baby at eight days of age was an external thing. It was the removal of flesh. But Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, in two different places in the book of Deuteronomy, spoke of the need for the people of Israel to be circumcised in the foreskin of their heart. Let's have a look at one of those places. I'd like you to turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30. We'll start reading at verse 1 of Deuteronomy, chapter 30. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, Moses is here spoken of the fact that in their disobedience they'll be driven from the promised land, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord, will God, the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And we stop our reading there. Moses speaks prophetically of a time in the future, a time when after being disciplined by the Lord, the people would be called back 
and when God would enact a different covenant, when God would do a different thing to what he had done so far. So far, the people have been given the law. Deuteronomy basically means the second reading of the law. But it is God's plan that the law would cease to be external and that the law would become internal, not something that is imposed upon people, but something that is placed within his people and that grows outward from his from the hearts of his people. Jesus was circumcised in, in obedience to the commandment of the law because Jesus, we're told, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew, is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it's God's requirement that all such sons be circumcised. Jesus was circumcised in fulfilment of the law. God is in the process of saving us, but he's not in the process of breaking his own law. He's saving us from the penalty of his own law. He's saving us from the penalty of broken law. He has saved us from the penalty of broken law. But God himself does not break his law. God saves righteously. God saves in a way that does not disqualify that which God has said about himself. I'm going to read to us now in Second Colossians. Second Colossians, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 2, Second Colossians. There is one book of Colossians. It has a number of chapters, and I'm going to read from Colossians chapter 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also... You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands." This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, there's an awful lot in here. And, you know, as you'll remember some time ago, we spent a fair bit of time working very slowly through the book of Colossians. But notice that the Apostle Paul here speaks of a circumcision made without hands. Looking back at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been baptized with him in in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So what do we understand from circumcision here and what Paul has to say about it? First of all, to be uncircumcised and you who are dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh from verse 13, the Apostle Paul is saying is to be in a state where you are dead in your sins. You're not alive in the sight of God. You don't have faith. To be truly uncircumcised is to be truly faithless not trusting in God, not believing in God, not obeying the commandments of God. At verse 11, we're told that we were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands 
by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Is Paul referring to what we're reading here in Luke chapter 2, or is he referring to something else? Well, partly, a little bit. Jesus was circumcised according to the law, born of a woman, born under the law, according to the righteous requirements of God's law, born a son of Abraham, Jesus was circumcised. The legal requirement of the law was fulfilled in him. But in the life of Jesus, we see where the circumcision points to. It's actually pointing to the cross. Paul here says that we were speaking, he speaks, looking here in verse 11, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Paul is actually saying that the circumcision was the death of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus died and was raised again. We being joined with the Lord Jesus are included with or circumcised without hands, putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Our baptism identifies us with Christ. Christ was circumcised. He also spoke of baptism as being a baptism into death. He was both circumcised and the required penalty of disobedience to the law was paid in his flesh, death. The circumcision that we've read of in Luke chapter 2 pointed to the circumcision of death, being cut off from the living, being put to death. This was also his baptism. This, this passage in Colossians chapter 2 is that which makes the closest connection between circumcision and baptism. And, you know, our, our infant Baptist friends, our pedo-Baptist friends often like to go to Colossians chapter 2 and say, there you see it, there you see the connection. Circumcision is connected to baptism, but it's connected to baptism, not through the act of a person. It's connected to baptism through a, through a work that is done without human hands. It's connected through Christ himself. Our relationship, oh, sorry, our relationship to circumcision and baptism is through being in unity with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that unity only comes about by faith. It doesn't come in any other way. No one can give it to you. No one can make it happen. God gives it to you. No man can make it happen. No, no person can awaken your hearts to faith and join you to the Lord Jesus Christ in a spiritual union. That would be my reply. It's something done without hands. Paul is not speaking of a physical act. He's speaking of a spiritual act that God himself does. So looking back into Luke Chapter 2, we see that the Lord Jesus was circumcised in accordance with the law, in accordance with obedience. You know, the, God Himself, God in His providence, God in His providential planning, God in His ordaining of the way that all things are to happen. The only begotten, eternally begotten Son of God took upon Himself flesh, and God landed Him, as it were. In, into a faithful family where that which ought to be done was done, 
where commandments were kept, where the word of God was considered to be something that is to be obeyed. And so Jesus goes to the temple. He's taken there by his parents. He's circumcised according to the law on the eighth day. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, Jesus says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Until all is accomplished. God does not save, I, I stress this, God does not save by breaking his own law. God has saved by the fulfilment of his own law. God does not deny himself. God is not, um, God is not confused within himself. God does not say yes, yes, no, no, like a man might say yes, yes, no, no. That which God says is true. That which God says stands. God's word stands forever. As we read on at verse 22, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So Luke makes reference here to two things basically at the same time. He makes reference to the the necessary purification of Mary according to Old Testament law. Let's turn to the book of Leviticus chapter 12. We'll read all of Leviticus chapter 12. It's only a short chapter. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as at the time of her menstruation she shall be unclean, and on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for thirty-three days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are complete. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for sixty-six days." And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, whether male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Now, there's all sorts of interesting stuff there. You know, you ask the question, why is a woman um, unclean for twice as long as she has a daughter as compared to if she had a male? And the answer to that question is truly, I don't exactly know. And I can tell you of the commentators I've read, they can't really give an answer either. They feel that it might have something to do with the fact that it was Eve who um, fell to the fell to the deception of the serpent, but no one's 100% certain on that idea. But the point is pretty clear. It's pretty simple. Human blood is involved. And as far as the Old Testament law is concerned, people are to have nothing to do with human blood. Blood is usually shed in giving birth. Blood, you know, a baby is usually born in, 
in a, in a rush of, you might say, blood and water. Blood and, um, yeah, let's just say blood and water. Let's leave it there at that. And as far as the whole thing with human blood is concerned, if anyone has any contact with human blood, they're considered to be unclean. I think that this points forward to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that people are bearers of the image of God. Our blood is not the blood of animals. It is the blood of people. The scripture says that there is life in the blood, that when there is no blood, there is no life. Anyway, Mary and Joseph have come to the temple in obedience to the commandment. Once again, Luke wants us to know that the law is being fulfilled. That which is being required is done. Their sacrifice is not a lamb. Their sacrifice is a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. In other words, the sacrifice that is offered is that of a poor person, not a wealthy person. Everything thus far in terms of Jesus' humanity is stressing his, I'll use the phrase, common humanity. His, his common humanity. He hasn't been born into a special family of amazingly wealthy people. He's born into a poor family of average working people. There are many things that are unusual about his birth. The virgin conception is obviously one. The visit of the shepherds is obviously another. The visit of the wise men that we see in the Gospel of Matthew is also another. The very nature of the one who was born is unusual. He's truly God and he's truly man. But in his humanity, well, the scripture says that there was nothing about him that would have told us he was anyone special. Like you and I, he's a person. Like you and I, he's born to a family. Like you and I, he, he lives, as it were, in the circumstances that God placed him in. So three particular laws, the law of circumcision, the law of purification concerning Mary and the baby and the law of the firstborn are all referenced here. And the Lord Jesus Christ is born into a family where all the observation of all three particular laws is carried out. It's important. It's important. This is, this is a major, major deal. You see, Jesus is to be the true Israelite the true son of God, the, the promised son of Abram, the seed of Abraham by through whom all the world will be blessed. And so the law of God is to be fulfilled in Jesus and it's to be fulfilled in every way. When we speak of Jesus fulfilling the law of God, we more think of Jesus fulfilling the moral law. We know that he did not murder. We know that he did not commit adultery. We know that he did not lie, steal, covet. We know these things. We, we understand he loved the Lord his God. He kept the Sabbath, etc., etc. He did not commit idolatry. We, we know these things. We, we think of these things as his, his moral deeds, his morality, his general righteousness. Yet the ceremonial law required fulfilment and everything that the ceremonial law pointed to required fulfilment. And so God saves without breaking his own law. 
Because in the end, the law of God is, if you want to think of it this way, it's our problem. In the end, the law of the God is that the law of God is that which demands that we all be put to death. You know, the law can be summed up, keep it perfectly, you shall live. Break the law, you shall die. Break the law, the penalty is death. Ultimately, all of us, we know, as Paul argues in the book of Romans, all of us are facing what? In the end, we come to death. We come to our last day. Whether we, whether we live on into old age and eventually our heart stops beating or, or whether, whether we're facing death through some other kind of occurrence, the simple fact of the matter is ultimately we're all facing death. Why are we facing death? Well, we know why. We know why. It's because we're not worthy of eternal life. Because it takes perfect obedience to bring about God's gift of eternal life. And none of us has ever rendered perfect obedience. None of us has ever fulfilled the requirements of the law of God. Turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5. I'll read from verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Looking back at verse 9 there of that which I just read, Romans chapter 5, verse 9, what are we saved from? His wrath. We're saved from the wrath of God. There are all sorts of things that we say we're saved from. I've been saved from my sins. I've been saved into eternal life. I've been saved from the power of Satan. All these things are true. But why are all these things hanging over us? Why are all these things a burden that drags us down? What has Jesus saved us from? We have been saved by him from the wrath of God. All of these things that mankind knows, all of these things that we could think of as the common troubles of humanity, these things are the result of the wrath of God. These things are the result of God's judgment on humanity. We are saved from these things, but we're saved because Jesus has turned aside the wrath of God and he's done it in a way that is lawful. We're saved from the penalty of God's just judgment. God in Christ is in effect saving us from himself. And in saving us from himself, we are being saved from all of the tools of judgment. I'll use that, I'll say it that way. The tools or the means of judgment by which God inflicts his judgment upon the earth. So in this picture that I'm giving you, the power of Satan, which is called the power of death in another place in Scripture, 
the power of sin, the power of temptation, is actually a tool in the hand of God. You know, when we, when we think of spiritual, spiritual war and we think of things that are happening in spiritual terms, we often think simply and only of the fact that Satan is opposed to God, that he is, as it were, the enemy or the opposer or the accuser, and that God is good, that God rules over us and rules over all of us and that we ought to be good, therefore, and obey God. Satan is certainly a rebel. He certainly hates God. He certainly hates the righteousness of God. But in the end, he's a tool in the hand of God. He attacks when he is permitted to attack. He causes pain and trouble when he is permitted to cause pain and trouble. He does what God has him do. One of the reformers said that Satan is a dog, a dog owned by God. He's a God owned by God. I'm sorry, a dog owned by God. He does that which God gives him to do. Through Christ, we have been reconciled to God. Through Christ, we have been counted righteous under the law. Do we have a relationship with the law, with the commandments of God, with the word of God? And the answer is yes, we certainly do. What is that relationship? It's through Christ. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Romans, turn over to Romans chapter 8. Reading at Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So what's happening there? What's Paul saying? The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Well, first of all, in Christ, the requirement of the law that we be punished unto death has been turned aside. The law is no longer able to kill us, as it were. The law kills. The law puts to death. When you break the law, the law brings about death. That's the way it works. That's the nature of the law. But the righteous requirement of the law, the requirement that we do things that are pleasing to God, is being fulfilled in us. It's first of all fulfilled in Christ himself, and we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is righteous, truly, perfectly, abundantly righteous. You and I are counted as righteous in Christ. And so the law no longer puts us to death. But even so, we are to walk. Here the Apostle Paul speaks of walking either to the flesh or with the flesh or with the spirit. We are to walk with the spirit. We are to walk in a way that pleases God. Looking once again at Romans, looking down, I'm sorry, at Romans chapter 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh are still under the condemnation of the law. The law requires their death. The law is the way the law works is that in breaking the law, you die and are turned aside. 
turned away from pleasing God. It is impossible to submit to God's law when you break God's law. I know I've used this illustration before, but let's imagine you and I, all of us here, let's imagine we do something that I think is a silly thing. Let's imagine we all solemnly vow here in the presence of God, we covenant that we will never sin again. We just won't sin. We're going to stop. We, 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 you know, we work ourselves up into this frenzy. We tell ourselves that we've got the power of the Holy Spirit. From this moment on, we say we're never going to sin. We promise in the presence of God we will not sin again. I've got a question for you. This is the way the law works. In making that promise, have we made ourselves less sinful or more sinful? More sinful. Why? Well, what's going to happen? We know what we're like. You know what you're like. Sure, sometimes you have good moments. Sometimes you have moments where you're strong in faith and where you do that which is right. Praise God for them. But by the end of this day, probably before you even get home, somehow or other, in thought, in word or deed, you're going to sin. So that promise, what has that promise just made us? The answer, even more sinful even more sinful. That's the way the law works. Knowing that which God requires of us and disobeying God's commandment makes us even more sinful. The law puts us to death, as it were. In Christ, that law is fulfilled. In Christ, that judgment of God is fulfilled. And so instead of the law turning us away from God, in Christ we are drawn into fellowship with God. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, we are actually enabled by faith to do acts of obedience. I won't, I won't, you're never going to hear me tell you that you can do anything perfectly in this world. You're never going to hear me tell you that in some way or other, you're going to be perfectly sanctified and be made Christ-like in this world. But I am telling you that by the power of God's Holy Spirit, we are enabled to obey God, that this Fulfilment of the law, this righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled in us is not just a fulfilment because Christ himself fulfilled it. It's a fulfilment because being in Christ, we are enabled to submit to the law and obey the law. We are enabled to do what is right, even though at times we're going to sin and we will need to be brought back to repentance by the spirit of God. And so it is important to us as Christians that our saviour is a lawful saviour. The Apostle Paul speaks of God being both just and the justifier. Looking in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me just slip in a few different words, that he might be righteous and making righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. God is righteous in forgiving our sins. God is just in cleansing us. Why? Because we are in Christ and Christ is our covenant head. Paul goes on to argue, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. 
Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This faith of ours that says someone had to die because the law was broken is upholding the holiness and the righteousness of the law because God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. God doesn't save breaking his own word. God doesn't save breaking his own promise. God doesn't save by pretending that evil is not evil. He's not, you know, the, the, the common picture of God is this benevolent grandfather picture, almost, almost a Santa Claus type picture. He's just so sweet and loving and gentle and he wouldn't judge a fly and the moment you say you're sorry, he's willing to pretend that the sin never happened. He's not pretending anything. That's not the way that it is. He's not erasing the writing on a whiteboard or something like that. He's not doing any of those things. Our sins have been crucified in Christ, who is the just and holy one, who fulfilled the required law of God. My friends, what's our relationship to the law? Our relationship to the law is in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. The law is counted as having been fulfilled in us and the law is in the process by faith, by the power of God's Holy Spirit, of actually being fulfilled in us. We are being made submissive to and obedient to the law of God. So turning back to where we started before that bit of a wander through some of the New Testament, we find that God in his providence is very careful to ensure that the law was properly fulfilled in the life of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. That he was circumcised and that this circumcision of the baby Lord Jesus points towards a greater circumcision. He is to be put to death. He is to die for no sin of his own. You know, we, we often use the phrase, it's terrible when innocents die. It's terrible when someone who is innocent suffers. In reality, no one is innocent. In reality, no one is good, no, not one. In reality, no one is going to be able to stand before God on the judgment day and complain, I died in my innocence. <laughs> no one's going to even do that. No one's, going to, no one's going to have, as it were, the backbone to face God in that way and say, I died in my innocence. No one dies in their innocence. You young guys, I love you. Really, I do. You know, you're young men, boys growing into manhood. In a way, if something happened to you, that would be terrible and we'd be saying, so young, so innocent. But in the, tr in the truth of the matter, we're all born in our sins. We're all born with trouble in the heart. We're all born, as it were, already trying to turn away from and deny God. When you come before God, you're never going to be able to claim you're innocent. And I think you already know it. You're never going to be able to claim that you've never done anything wrong in all your life. But Jesus, he was the innocent one who died. He was the one guilty of no sin. He kept asking the question of those who attacked him, which of you can convict me of sin? 
and all of those who had anything to do with his condemnation, Pilate himself said, I find no fault in this man. And when he died, the centurion at the cross said, surely this was the son of God. The only innocent man who ever died was our Lord Jesus himself. And he was innocent in fulfilment of the law of God. And for you and I, that is so necessary and that is so important because if our relationship with God was through the law, the law would be saying, kill him, kill him, kill him, kill him. Kill him, kill him, kill him, kill him. In, in Pilgrim's Progress, there's, there's a situation where Christian walks out of the way and he heads towards the town of legality. Now, this is a picture. You know, it, it's, it's a, the idea of this is that in heading towards the town of legality, he's trying to find justification by law. And as he heads towards the town of legality, a very great man with a, with a beard comes and starts to beat him and beat him and beat him. That man was Moses. And when, when he asked for mercy, Moses said, you don't find mercy here, mate. I don't give mercy and continued to beat him. You see what Bunyan's trying to get at. The law says we must die. Grace says those in Christ must live. But the law was fulfilled in Christ because Christ in his innocence and in his righteousness died on our behalf. So the evangelist, Luke, in writing his gospel, wants all of us to know Jesus was born under the law, born of a woman, born under the law, and that that law has been fulfilled in him according to the will of God. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we are saved through and by the works of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you have taken our sins and they have been nailed to the cross in Christ and that they have been buried with him. And that we, through faith, by the power of your Holy Spirit, have been raised with him from the dead and that we are now marked as righteous in your sight, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Our Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Father, we pray that we indeed would live in such a way that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us and that we would submit to the righteousness of your law. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.